Good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you here today as we worship again, uh, worship our Lord, and we're so grateful to Him. I mean, this is a sort of a grateful weekend, isn't it, as we celebrate the independence of our country and celebrate the freedoms that we have in uh, America. Uh, so, hey, before we get into that, I just want to give a quick shout out to our vac Vacation Bible School volunteers, everybody that helped. We had a great week with the kids. Uh, we were able to raise, yeah, give them a hand. We were able to raise about $3,000, a little more for that, uh, than that for the camp. So terrific uh, offering, yes, amen. And um, still pulling the, the, what is that stuff? The silly, yeah, yeah. It's in my ears and trying to get it out. Uh, but we had a great uh, week. We're going to do a little bit more next week to recognize all those volunteers. But again, thank you all for your help. Now, again, this is the 4th of July weekend, and this is our national holiday celebrating our independence. On July the 4th, 1776, the Second Continental Congress ratified the Declaration of Independence. Now, that was a formal notification that the 13 colonies were declaring independence from English rule. Congress actually approved of the Declaration on July the 2nd, but adopted it or ratified it two days later. And I understand that on that day, only one person signed it. John Hancock took up all the space, right? Uh, but the rest would eventually sign it a month later. The Declaration of Independence did not automatically mean that the colonies were free. They were declaring their freedom. But if they lost, the men that signed that declaration were basically signing their death warrants. They would all be found guilty of treason against the British government. Their freedom would have to be fought for and won on the battlefield. And those who signed that declaration we're going to have to sacrifice a lot before they experience that freedom. There were 56 men who signed the Declaration. And of those 56, five were captured by the British and charged with treason. They would be tortured and they would die in, under imprisonment. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons as they fought for the Continental Army. Two others had sons who were captured and spent time in POW camps. Nine would die from wounds or hardships as a result of the war. As Michael W. Smith in his newsletter wrote, they signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. For instance, Carter Braxton of Virginia, He'd been a wealthy planter and trader before the war. He saw all of his ships swept away at sea by the British Navy. He had to sell his home, his properties to pay for his debts. He would die in poverty. Thomas McKean was forced to move his family constantly because of British harassment. He served in Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and he too would die in poverty. Thomas Nelson Jr. had a home in Yorktown, Virginia. 
At the Battle of Yorktown, British General Cornwallis made his home in his, or his uh, headquarters in Nelson's home. Nelson encouraged General Washington to fire upon the house, which was destroyed, and he would later die bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and property destroyed, and his wife was put in jail, and she would die within months. John Hart and his wife had 13 children. During the war, he was driven from his home, forced to live in the forests and the caves near his property. His fields, his gristmill, and his home were all destroyed by British troops. When he did return home, he discovered his wife dead and his children vanished. He would die a few weeks later from exhaustion and a broken heart. And just a side note, the only two signers of the Declaration of Independence to become president, do you, do you know who they were? Tell me. This is pop quiz. Not George Washington, he didn't sign it. But Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And both of them would die on the same day. July the 4th, 1826. That's a, that's a crazy truth, isn't it? We've often heard that freedom isn't free. And I would say that no statement has ever been truer. Whether if it is the freedom that we celebrate as a nation or the freedom we celebrate as Christians, that freedom did not come without sacrifice. Of course, in our cases, Christians, the, fact, the sacrifice was first and foremost that of Jesus dying on the cross. But we are also instructed in Scripture that we must offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So here's the question. How do we sacrifice and still rejoice? Sacrifice entails suffering. It can mean hardship and personal cost. Just as we saw with those founding fathers, sacrifice can mean loss and hurt. Was it worth it? Was the sacrifice for freedom worth it? Was America worth it? What do you think? I say yes. Nathan Hale was a spy for, for Washington. He was captured by the British and was executed by hanging on September 22nd, 1776. The story that went around the colonies was that his last words were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Now that's probably propaganda. But it certainly fit his actions and his heart. He died obeying the orders of his commander, General Washington. Those who made those sacrifices could also rejoice because they fought and sacrificed for something that was bigger than themselves. Let me ask you this. Are the souls of all who have been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus, worth it? I think God says yes. 
Are the sacrifices we make to follow Christ worth it? I hope that all of us would say yes. Now we are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, a study we're calling The Secret to a Joyful Life. And in our text we discover that we can have a joyful attitude even as we make sacrifices. And in this passage, Paul gives three admonitions to those who follow Christ. And the big idea for this message today is this. By following Paul's encouragement, we can find joy in the sacrifice. Now the first admonition that Paul makes in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12, is that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This hardly sounds joyful to me. I don't know about you, but <laughs> on the surface, certainly it doesn't. But as we dig a little deeper, we discover how this leads us to a joyful attitude. So let's read our text, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Now, first of all, we understand Paul was writing to people who were already saved. He's not saying that we can be saved by our good works. We don't need to misconstrue what he's trying to say. That would be in direct contradiction to what he wrote in other passages, like in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul wrote, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So obviously, Paul is not saying that we need to work in order to be saved. So what in the world does he mean when he writes this in the passage? I believe he's encouraging those Christians to be faithful and continue to make sacrifices for their faith. Yes, they are saved, but they haven't arrived at that final destination yet. Just like many in America, after the Declaration of Independence, could have said, hey, we're free, but the war wasn't over yet. They needed to continue to work that out. Now, Reese, Gareth Reese, in his commentary on Philippians, suggests the idea is, that Paul is promoting is, don't stop working halfway. Don't be satisfied with a partial salvation. Go on working until salvation is fully and finally completed. He also points out that Paul didn't write work for salvation, but rather work out your salvation. So every day we are to seek to become more Christ-like, that is the purpose we seek to achieve. 
And our takeaway from this is that we need to continue to be living sacrifices until the day we experience our full salvation. In other words, the day that we go to heaven with Jesus. So we never stop serving. We never stop working for the Lord. Now secondly, in that first part, Paul used the words fear and trembling. Again, these are not words that we would associate with joy, are they? Fear and trembling, according to uh, Reese's commentary again, is not a contradiction of the joyful spirit which Paul encourages the Philippians to have. Why is that? Well, the idea of fear and trembling means that we have a respect and an awe of God. Fear means a wholesome dread of offending God. Do you think we should fear offending God? I, I think we should. I think that's part of the problem in our culture. Too many people are not afraid of offending God anymore. And as the, the wise uh, philosopher Solomon once said, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Too many people don't fear the Lord. And they're just like, we're going to do whatever we want, whenever we want. But fear causes us to restrain ourselves. Trembling is a quaking or shaking out of fear at the thought of failing to be faithful to Christ. So can we be joyful in our salvation and at the same time have this sense of responsibility of being faithful? I believe we can. I like the way John Piper explains it in, the, in his book, The Pleasure of God. He writes, suppose you're exploring an unknown Greenland glacier in the dead of winter. And just as you reach the sheer cliff with spectacular views of miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow and a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. Here, you feel secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on, and you watch it with a kind of trembling pleasure as it surges out across the distant glaciers. Not everything we call fear vanishes from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remains the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or to be the adversary of such a power. And so it is with God. Fear of God is what is left of the storm when you are safe in a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder and fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of His people intense. The fireside fellowship is all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. End of quote. 
So yes, even though we have this fear and this trembling, we have joy knowing that God is with us even in the storms of life as the storms are howling all around us. I don't want to live without His power and might watching over me. And, and I certainly understand that as I have this fear, a healthy fear of disobeying God, I understand that He is with me. And in the end, all will be well. So I work out my salvation. Never quit seeking to become more like Christ. And Paul reminds us that we're not alone in this. In fact, it is God who is working in us through His Spirit to help us do His will and to act the way we should. His purpose is that we become more Christ-like and He is helping us to achieve that purpose. Now there was a second admonition in the passage we're reading today. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Let me repeat that. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it easy to grumble and complain when I am totally focused on me. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Sometimes our focus is all on the negative stuff. Everything that we see that's bad, that's not working out the way we want to work it out. Especially if we are having to sacrifice and suffer through some things, we tend to grumble and complain. But Paul encourages us to have a different attitude. And so if there's anyone here who has struggled like I have, with grumbling or complaining, listen closely to what Paul has to say. Beginning in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So what is Paul saying? He's teaching that everything we do should be done without a negative spirit. In other words, all things should be done with a joyful spirit. And it seems like there are some issues that Paul had had to deal with in the church of Philippi that would get people in a negative mindset. There was some jealousy among church leaders that he dealt with in chapter 1. There were some false charges uh, uh, or false teachers that he challenged in chapter 3. And there were a couple of women who were having a feud that was causing division within the church that he wrote about in chapter 4. So there were three reasons Paul wanted them to do all things cheerfully and without complaining. And the first, his desire was that they be blameless and pure. 
Blameless means that by their actions, no one could accuse them of wrongdoing. Outwardly, as people observe us, we do what is right. Pure means innocent in our motivations. The idea is that inwardly, we desire to do the right thing. So, both outwardly and inwardly, we want to please God. Now, the person who is grumbling and arguing and complaining all the time is not presenting a blameless and pure lifestyle. Compared to the world around them, Paul wanted them to be without fault. Not perfect, but their lives would be different from the corruption that they could see in the world. And secondly, he wanted them to shine like stars in the sky. This means that he wanted them to set an example. He wanted the people that they influenced to see them clearly. Like if you went out into a, a dark night, you can see the stars filling up the sky. When someone lives a godly life, they are a light to the world. When people see the joy in your life because of Christ in you, you are a light to all who see you. This is what Jesus challenged his hearers to understand in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew chapter 5? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, there was a, a third reason that Paul wanted them to live this way. He wanted to be proud of them. He mentions on the day of the Lord. Now, we know that the day of the Lord is when Jesus comes back. And on that day, Paul would know that his work was not in vain. He would know that he had not suffered all these things that he had suffered for no reason. His sacrifice meant something. When Judgment Day came, Paul wanted to be able to point to these Christians knowing that his labor had been fruitful. Serving and sacrificing without griping and complaining reveals a heart that is in it for the right reasons. Like we said last week, it isn't about me. It's about Jesus. The only reason we would gripe or complain is because we're making it about me. You might remember, and we, we, in VBS this week, the lessons were all on Joseph. And you remember in Joseph's life, all the terrible things that happened to Joseph. 
If anybody had a reason to gripe or complain, wouldn't you say Joseph had a reason? I mean, his brothers throw him in a well, then they sell him off to be a slave, and then he gets thrown into prison for something he didn't do. And somehow, God orchestrated things to where he would be put in a position to be second to Pharaoh and be in charge of distributing food to all the people who were starving. And who should come before him but his brothers, who 21 years earlier had tried to kill him and get rid of him. Now, a person who gripes and complains, they might look at this as a great opportunity for some revenge. Ha ha! It's come back to you. You're going to reap what you sowed. But not Joseph. Joseph's attitude was this in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So friends, let us serve well. Let's never quit serving well. Let's become more and more Christ-like. Let us live in such a way that we draw people to Christ, not push them away. Let's be positive in our interactions with people. Let's recognize that our service is accomplishing things for God. It's not about us. It's about Him. And then we can do this last thing that our text tells us. We can rejoice even as we make sacrifices. Now again, that sounds counterintuitive. Rejoicing while you are sacrificing doesn't quite make a lot of sense. And yet, this is exactly what Paul said could happen to those of faith. In Philippians 2, we go back and we read verses 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul said he was being poured out like a drink offering. Now that means, and is a reference to, sacrificial rituals where people would take a cup filled with wine and they would pour it either onto the sacrifice or beside it. And it was a representation of blood being spilled, a life being given up. Remember, Paul was in prison while he was awaiting trial before Caesar. The outcome of that hearing could very well be his execution. And in fact, that's exactly what would happen. So when he says he's being poured out, when he says that he is sacrificing, that literally his life was filled with sacrifice and service. But even in that moment, he was rejoicing. And not only was he rejoicing 
but he believed that his brothers and sisters could rejoice with him. Though Paul's life was not easy, he could rejoice in his faith and the faith of those he had influenced. He could rejoice in the fact that when he died, he would be with Jesus. He could rejoice in the fact that many people would be in heaven with Jesus because of his efforts and his work. I'd say that's a lot to rejoice about. When we give ourselves to God and to His service, we can rejoice no matter what comes our way. Those early uh, people who signed that Declaration of Independence, I mean, they could rejoice in the fact, the outcome of this, maybe even at that time they didn't know it, but they declared, we're free. As some would say, I would rather live free than die a slave. So what are those things that we have to overcome? What are those things in our life that come our way that would strip us of our joy? I'm reminded of Jim Valvano. Anybody here remember that guy? Now, I'm a Carolina fan. He was a state coach, but I I really liked Jim Valvano. When he was facing his own death because of cancer, he made a speech announcing the V Foundation for Cancer Research at an ESPY uh, awards show. The date was March 4th, 1993. And the last words of his speech are what I remember most about what he said. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities It cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, it cannot touch my soul. Even as he faced his own death, he had joy because he knew it it can only take away this physical body, but it can't keep me from God. It can't keep me from the love of my family. You know, you can go through a whole list of things that can happen to you and still come out with the same thing. Our attitude about it will make all the difference in the world. Will we make the best of what we've been given or will we give in to negative thoughts? Friends, no matter what you are facing, the God of heaven loves you and he is with you. And you have to have faith that he will not abandon you. Now, today we started out by hearing a little bit about Central India Christian Mission, CICM. Has the most positive and wonderful Christian people leading it. And over the years, I have had an opportunity to meet many of them and hear their stories. They inspire me, and and their stories make me rejoice. But here's the strange thing. Most of those stories involve sacrifice and suffering. One story has always stood out to me, and I've shared this before, but I I think it's worth sharing again, and I know that there are people here today that haven't heard it. But many of you might remember the story of Mihar Singh. 
Mihar was an old preacher who would go from village to village sharing the gospel, teaching people about Christ. He approached one village, and as he began to enter the village, he was met by four Hindu extremists, and they had sticks in their hands. Now, Hindu extremists believe that Hinduism is the national religion of India, and they believe that all other religions should be cast out. They view Christianity as a Western religion, which is sort of funny, but that's, that's what they look at it as. They don't really know who Jesus is. They just see him as competing for Hindus. So these extremists uh, are willing to do anything to push Christianity out of their country. The ones who met Mihar that day threatened that if he entered into the village and began talking to people, that they were going to beat him and they were going to kill him. So Mihar, even at that time he was a fairly old man, he turned around and he began to walk away. And they thought, you know, he, he's gone. But Mihar walked around the village <laughs> and he came in the other side of the village. He found the family he was supposed to study with, and he began to teach them about Jesus. Well, these extremists somehow found out about this, and they found him, and they started beating him with these rods. They fully intended to kill him. But in the midst of the beating, Mihar did something strange. At least it was strange to them. He began to pray out loud. It sort of startled him. The leader asked him what he thought he was doing, and he said he was praying for them. <laughs> and the leader said, why would you pray for us? We're going to kill you. And Mihar said, because Jesus loves you, and I love you. Now, most of us would have just been enraged that some guys are beating us and we would get angry and we would complain and we would argue and we would try to have retribution. But Mihar focused on Jesus. And that stunned those men so much that the leader sent the friends home. He picked Mihar up in his arms and he took him to a house in the village. And he told the homeowners to look after Mihar. And he gave them money to do so. And he came back every day to check on how Mihar was doing. And of course, every day when he came in, Mihar told him about Jesus. And eventually, that man who tried to kill Mihar would accept Jesus as his personal Savior. And not only that, but he would become a preacher himself. And he would baptize over 500 people before his own death. I think of Mihar and his love for his people. Every time I saw Mihar, he had a smile on his face. There was such a joy in his life even though he had so many scars. 
it wasn't because he had a lot of money because Mihar was not a rich man by earthly standards. He wasn't joyful because he had material possessions or because he had so much power. It wasn't because he didn't have problems. It wasn't because he didn't suffer or sacrifice. No. He had this joy because he knew Jesus. And he cheerfully shared Jesus with thousands of people. It's estimated that in his lifetime, he baptized over 5,000 people. He died a couple of years ago. And I feel certain when he crossed over, there was a huge welcoming party. And I feel sure that he was rejoicing because he had not run his race in vain. How about you? Other than having a job and a house and a family, friend, what are you achieving that's going to last longer than you are? What are you doing that will bring you joy here and in heaven? I really encourage you as Paul encouraged you. Find your joy even in the sacrifices you make as you serve God. Because when you do, you will discover that you can be joyful even in the sacrifice. Father, we come to you today. And we thank you that even while we go through hard times, we can experience joy. And I pray that we will use those opportunities, as Paul did, to share our faith with people. Help us to have that positive attitude, to not grumble and complain as we focus on our own problems, but like Paul and like Joseph, to see the purpose for which you have put us here. And that purpose is to reach as many people with the gospel of Christ as we can so that we don't run this race or live this life in vain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.